This is Stephanie Palmer, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name's Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 65. Well, today I'm excited, and you know, I always say that, but today I am particularly excited because we have the pleasure of meeting Stephanie Palmer. Now, you may know who Stephanie Palmer is if you've ever read this excellent book, Good in a Room. If you haven't read this book, you need to. I consider it an essential book to read if you want to break into TV writing, if you've ever written a feature, or if you ever just want to get your ideas sold and across in a room. It says how to sell yourself and your ideas and win over any audience, and it is absolutely, absolutely true and lives up to its name. A little bit about Stephanie Palmer. I'm going to read her bio right now. Stephanie Palmer helps creative people learn to pitch ideas and sell their projects. Stephanie founded Good in a Room in 2000 and is the author of the book, Good in a Room, by Random House 2008. She has been featured on the Today Show on NBC, The Early Show on CBS, KTLA, Los Angeles Times, National Public Radio, and on Inc., Atlantic, Variety, Script, and Speaker magazines. She has led workshops for organizations including Google, William Morris Endeavor, Merrill Lynch, Warner Brothers, UCLA, USC, National Speakers Association Graduate School, Asia Media Festival, International Creativity Conference, the Screenwriting Expo, and the Great American Pitch Fest. She is the moderator for the American Film Market's annual pitch conference. Previously, Stephanie was the Director of Creative Affairs for MGM, where she supervised the acquisition, development, and production of feature films and heard over 3,000 pitches. Some of her projects included 21, Legally Blonde, Be Cool, The Brothers Grimm, Agent Cody Banks, Agent Cody Banks 2, A Guy Thing, and Good Boy. The Hollywood Reporter named her one of the top 35 executives under 35. She is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University and lives with her husband and son in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wow. Cool, cool stuff. You, can re you receive her free course, Seven Days to Creating a Better Pitch for Your Screenplay, and she shares examples of successful film and TV pitches on her blog, goodinaroom.com slash blog. You can find out a lot about her and her resources there at goodinaroom.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at goodinaroom. You can like her on Facebook, facebook.com slash, you guessed it, goodinaroom. Easy to remember stuff. Make sure you go there right now and bookmark those places. And absolutely buy her book. I, As I said before, I consider it essential reading. You can support the podcast by buying it at the podcast site. You go to tvwriterpodcast.com, click on the store link, and you'll notice while you're there, there are other links. Any purchase from amazon.com, amazon.ca, Adorama, or BH Photo. Their entire websites can support the podcast. So please bookmark that page. If you're buying there, 
um, through those links. It doesn't cost you any more, but it does help to support the podcast. And of course, there's a page on that site if you click on the support tab where you can donate to support the podcast and my upcoming LA move. And you'll notice that there are many reward levels available. There might be something there that might benefit you. Please click on the support tab at the site and check it out. And while you're there, of course, check out the TV Writer Twitter database. Over 960 writers and continues to climb. There are handy links at the top that you can follow the list, uh, the entire list without clicking on each one, which is a big help. There's part one and part two because of the things about Twitter that you can't, you can't have more than 500 people in a list. So two links to click and you can follow all 960 writers. Check that out. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Gray Jones is my handle. Well, on to my wonderful interview with Stephanie Palmer. You're going to love it. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with pitch consultant Stephanie Palmer, author of Good in a Room. How are you doing, Stephanie? Very well today. Cool. And I, I actually, I have to show your book. This is a wonderful, wonderful book, and it's not just for the TV industry. It is for anybody who's pitching an idea. And I thought, I mean, I thought this was a book that is essential reading for somebody who wants to get their ideas across. Thanks. Thanks. Cool. So, uh, well, let's, uh, let's get started. So you have heard lots of pitches, as a matter of fact, over 3,000 in your lifetime and probably even more since you worked at uh, MGM. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about when you started hearing pitches and why you thought that you wanted to get into this instead of continuing to hear those pitches? Well, I started hearing pitches um, first, actually, when I was at Jerry Bruckheimer Films. Mm -hmm. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to get to see all kinds of people who are pitching ideas, both TV and film, but primarily I worked in film. And then I moved to MGM Pictures, where I started as an assistant and worked my way up to be the story editor and then the director of creative affairs. And in that job, my role was to basically be in charge of all the submissions to the studio, which was about 4000 per year. And that would be both screenplays, but also writers, directors, and producers coming into the office to pitch their projects. And I was one of the team of executives to determine which projects we wanted to buy and make into movies. And so after hearing thousands and thousands of pitches, I started getting interested in, well, why are some people being successful over and over again and other people are just not breaking through? Even mm. if, perhaps in my opinion, there were better, I knew that there had to be better ideas out there that just weren't being pitched well enough. Mm. And so after seven years at the studio, just personally, I was starting to realize, hmm, okay, I'm looking for a change. And what is it that I really enjoy about my job? Because there's a lot of different aspects of being a studio executive, mm -hmm. many of which are really exciting, but others of which are quite frustrating. And so I thought, well, after I did a little personal thinking and reflecting, the part that I enjoyed the most was working with writers. And there were a couple of specific examples of people where they come into my office and I love their idea but the writer was quite nervous and didn't really know how to pitch it in a way that I could then put them in front of my boss, the head of the studio. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with them in my office and said, okay, here's what you need to do. And we're going to practice and only say this little amount of information. Stop talking after you finish this part, you know, gave them specific advice so that then when I took them in to meet with my boss, he was like, great, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And it was so satisfying to, 
help this person sell their first project, and now they're off and have a big TV career, um, and actually at that point a film career. He works both in TV and film for that writer in particular. And he told me later that at that point he was basically at the end of his rope and he was living on his brother's couch and was wow. going to have to move back home when he finally sold his first project. So it was just really satisfying to be like, okay, here's this great idea. It should have happened. He just needed a little boost. Mm. And so I decided that that's really where I wanted to focus my time and my energy and in that part that I really love, which is helping writers break in and helping people sell projects. Mm. That is great. Well, and I hear a lot of things. And something that I hear often, it seems lately actually, is that the the projects that are getting green lights are by a certain core of people. So you've got your 50 top showrunners in TV, and it just seems like those guys and gals are are getting their ideas on screen. And then there's literally thousands of people writing pilots, and they're projects aren't getting the green light. But it, as I read your book, I just thought, wait a second. It could very well be that people are just making mistakes and they're pitching. And maybe it's not really about the fact that these guys are just the top showrunners, but it's just that they're pitching the best. And I think that that's true. I think that there are people with really good ideas out there, but they don't know how to pitch them. And that I think it is natural that the best pitches win, not mm. necessarily the best ideas. And I think that we see that we're all consumers when we're in buying situations, like something as simple as we're going into the grocery store and we're deciding which cereal we want to purchase. There could be a really amazing cereal, but if it's wrapped in a really ugly, unattractive package, we're not likely to buy it. Mm. And so just like a, uh, food companies spend millions on their packaging, it is important for people with a good idea to spend time learning how to pitch it and package it in the right way so that the potential buyer sees the value. Mm. Now, this is an industry, particularly writing, that tends toward, and not everybody, it tends towards introverted people. I mean, it's a very sol solitary profession. Um, or can be uh, television writing. You often have a, a a room that you're writing in. But I'm by nature an inter introvert. Can an introvert learn to pitch? Absolutely. And I think that this is an amazing thing. And it's sort of unfair that writers are expected to pitch well, mm -hmm. because naturally the people who are drawn to writing as a profession are drawn to it because they like expressing their ideas on paper. They like working by themselves in a solitary environment, whether it's at their house or in an office, but they're working by themselves, expressing their ideas in a private, quiet place. Mm -hmm. And so to expect that same person to have sales skills where they're pitching, which is a totally <laughs> different set of skills, yeah. they're talking out loud, they're meeting with strangers, often a group of people, it's a high stakes can be a very nerve-wracking situation, and they're basically expected to sell, mm. which a lot of people have negative associations with. So it's, it seems unfair, but it is very much a part of how decisions are made. And in my experience, and I love introverts, mm. uh, my husband is very introverted, my yeah. dad is very introverted, that they often can be the best pitchers, 
they can be better pitchers than people who are naturally extroverted Mm -hmm. because, as a broad generalization, they are much better listeners. The way to be a good pitcher is by listening and paying attention to what the buyer is saying, how they're, what they're talking about, and and having that outward focus. Mm. And so for some people who naturally are very talkative and outgoing, that they may not have that same strength of being such a a solid listener. Well, I I loved in your book the how you said that we can learn that specifically you talked about um having an a hundred percent outward focus in your listening which i thought was a really interesting way to put it thanks but that you you said that that we even a person who is an extrovert who's maybe not good at listening or an introvert who's so introverted that they're not getting outward in their listening that it can be learned so how do you learn this Well, I think that it is a practice, just like learning to write, learning to ride a bike, learning to play piano, whatever the skill is. Focusing on listening is also a great way that naturally, I I find, decreases nerves because you're putting your attention on something outside of yourself. Mm. And by doing that, a lot of times the inner voice that's saying, should I even be here? I'm scared. Do they like me? What if I screw up? You know sort of negative self-talk that we naturally have, Mm -hmm. it kind of quiets that voice because we're focusing on the other person. What are they saying? What's happening in the room? What can I learn? And that can be a really helpful tool for someone who is feeling nerves or who feels like, I don't know that I can get through this meeting. Um, If they think, I, I often tell my clients, just think about what is one thing that you can learn from this meeting? from the other person, from the situation. And if you learn one thing in that meeting, that's a valuable experience. Mm. Well, and I do think it, it bears mentioning that this is not something optional, particularly in, in writing. It's something we have to learn. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so if you, listener right now, are an introvert and you want to get ahead, you're going to have to learn this. And I think there are other ways that we can practice. I, I remember um, way, way, way back in university, I I played guitar. And uh-huh. I, when I first started playing guitar, I would play in my room with the door closed. Uh-huh. Then I graduated to playing in the stairwell. So people who would hear as they, <laughs> they went up the stairs. Then I graduated to I, I would go into somebody else's dorm room with the door closed and play for them. And then gradually I, I went outward and outward and outward until I was playing for big groups of people. And I, th- I think for an introvert, we got to understand that that things like parties that or or even even a smaller thing like a dinner party, even as we go into something like that, we got to we got to say, I have to learn how to get out of myself. And and, and it takes practice. Absolutely. And I think your description of your playing the guitar at bigger and bigger, sort of like raising the stakes, but just a little bit Mm -hmm. each time is a great metaphor for how I suggest that people learn to pitch. Mm. But it's not that you go from only working at home by yourself to suddenly you're at NBC pitching your project to the head (laughs) of the studio and 10 other executives and you expect that, oh, it's going to magically work out. It's just like you wouldn't expect that you're going to play guitar in your dorm room and then you're going to be playing at Madison Square Garden. Mm. You know, that there's multiple steps and the more that you build in a pattern of success, 
you know, a small success, then you build on that a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more that you can naturally grow and it doesn't have to be nearly as intimidating and, you know, kind of destined to fail if you automatically think, oh, I'm just going to go straight from the small experience to the highest stakes possible. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Blake Snyder advocated um, pitching to anybody. Um, and actually, I had a really interesting discussion with Bob DeRosa. He's a writer for, he wrote Killers uh, and also uh -huh. he, uh, writes for White Collar. And he, he was saying that there, I, I mentioned your idea about um, in the book, you, you busted the myth of the elevator pitch. And he, he was saying, well, you know, Blake Snyder, he, he advocates going to anybody in a coffee shop and telling them your idea. And, and, um, well, okay, why, why don't we first, <laughs> I might be getting ahead of it, it a bit, but why do you think that people shouldn't do what we hear of as being something we should always do, which is the elevator pitch? Aha. Well, here's where we're getting a little two different ideas, I think, confused or combined. So one is the idea of the elevator pitch, which is commonly used in business. And the idea of this elevator pitch is like that you need to have a short summary of your idea and it's basically the same thing that you just blast to any person who you possibly run into. And the whole idea of the term elevator pitch is like if you happen to run into a decision maker in an elevator, that that's a situation where you should just jump on them and blast out your idea. And I suggest that, that, that you should never tell someone your idea in an elevator. Hmm. You only want to pitch your idea if you really care about it, which you should, and you've worked hard on it in a situation where the person can continue the conversation, mm. where they can say yes, so that they need to be in their office so they can write it down, in front of their computer so they can see the information, you know, in a place where they can actually accept that information, mm. and that you need to have your pitch customized. Because any high-level buyer, and this includes any TV showrunner, network executive, studio executive, they expect your pitch to be customized to them. Hmm. That's like the base level. And people know, they can tell if you're pitching the same generic, you know, static thing that you pitch to everybody. Like mm -hmm. you, you can just tell when someone has the cadence of like, this is their memorized spiel <laughs> that they repeat to everyone. And you as the listener kind of feel like, well, you're just kind of treating me the same as everybody else underlying that's the feeling of like, oh, you think that I'm just like everybody else, whereas these high-level decision makers want to be treated as special, unique. You've customized it here. We know your, all the different TV shows you have on the network right now. Here's why my show fits within this whole, you know, or it builds on this audience that, I, that you handle so well. Like, it needs to be very customized. Mm. So that, that's my basic theory about an elevator pitch. But a separate idea where I agree with Blake Snyder mm -hmm. is that I think that what, what Blake is talking about is he thinks that pitching should be part of the creative process. Right. And I believe yeah. that too. I definitely believe that. So ha not um, working on your idea by yourself for a year and then thinking, okay, now I need to work on the pitch. Now I need to figure out what the log line is. Now I need to figure out what the short summary is. Mm -hmm. He's saying you should do that right at the beginning, and I think so too. Mm. And so this is where you're getting feedback from other people who are not potential decision makers. Right. So you're not running into the studio president or the big TV <laughs> producer and 
running their, your idea by them, but you are asking your friends, other writers, random people who you think might be in the target audience of mm-hmm. your idea to give you feedback. Right. Testing and I the think idea. That you're testing the idea. And an interesting thing that I have noticed, if I asked at a screenwriting conference of aspiring writers, how many of you pitch your ideas before you write the screenplay or the, or the you know, TV pilot, mm-hmm. very few people would raise their hand. Wow. But if I'm doing a workshop of working TV writers mm-hmm. and I say, how many of you pitch the idea before you write the pilot, 100% would raise their hand. Interesting. This is a real differentiator between the people who are working who understand the value of including pitching as part of your creative process versus people who are wanting to break in but feeling like, you know, I need to protect my idea or I don't want anyone else's feedback until it's totally done. Interesting, interesting. Well, in in it, especially in the context of television, it totally makes sense because television is written in in a room. It it is written where even the the showrunner will pitch an idea to the the rest of the writers in in the room. Uh, I mean, depending on the showrunner, they might just walk in and say, "This is what we're going to do." But but you know what I mean. Like, but they yeah. say, "Why?" He'll say, "Why don't we have the act break here?" And then people will say, "Well, no. Why don't we do it here?" And and the thing that people don't understand as they're writing their spec material and writing their pilots to um to break in that. If it, if this showrunner has to do that, then why wouldn't we also have to have that as part of our our process? Exactly. Well said. Yeah, I, I was I was talking to Keto Shim, Shimizu, uh, a younger writer, and it was really really cool. Um, she wrote on the Cape, and and uh, is actually doing quite quite well. She was in one of the fellowships, uh-huh. and as she was in the fellowship, the fellowship didn't actually lead directly to her getting a job, but what she decided to do is. Um, she she loved workshopping the ideas in in her fellowship group and she talked to to a few people in the fellowship group and said why don't we meet together after this fellowship is done and we'll continue to have this room to incubate our ideas and uh, and that was yeah it was it was one of the ways that she was able to get her projects to the point where where when she did pitch them that that she was able to break in i mean a great example and also a great example of how she took the initiative mm-hmm. to say, let's continue this. And just that little bit of saying, I want to keep this group together. Let's develop it. What a valuable thing. And I think that that is available to most any writer, but it, it is a little scary to ask your friends or to put yourself out there to say, I'm going to take responsibility for this. Mm. But what an amazing benefit. So worth that little bit of organizational time to make that happen. Oh yeah. And, and I, and it's interesting because I I know what you mentioned about the the difference between two groups and how uh, one might not pitch and one might pitch. I think that there's also a whole bunch of people who might go to a fellowship like that and say, this fellowship is going to get me a job. And then after it's done, say, where's my job and, and not do mm-hmm. anything about it. And I, and I right. think what I'm, what I'm hearing through all of this is that there, there's a lot of work involved in this, but it's, but it's very, um, deliberate. E- even the stages of a meeting, you have to know what's going on at every stage and you could get 
right to the end and then break it by doing something <laughs> that you shouldn't do or saying something you shouldn't say or, or extend, overstaying your welcome or, or that kind of thing. Why, why don't we talk about that a little bit, about the stages of a meeting and um, even at the end or at the beginning, how you could just totally kill it. <laughs> sure. Well, the after being through thousands of meetings as a studio executive, um, but also pitching projects myself, like, for example, even this book, which I pitched, mm-hmm. um, and also working with many clients now since 2005, I've worked with hundreds of clients who have pitched their projects successfully to networks and studios. Mm-hmm. And through all those thousands of meetings, I came up with a foundation, which is basically that every pitch meeting has five stages. Mm -hmm. So just like every screenplay has three acts, pitch meetings are structured in five stages. And those are building rapport, information gathering, the pitch, question and answer, and the closing. Mm -hmm. And so people who are successful in pitch meetings prepare for these five stages, anticipate them, and they have a strategy for handling each of these five stages before they go into the room. Mm. I loved how you mentioned that the Q&A is yes. 50% of the pitch. Yes. D- tell me a little bit about that. Okay. I love the Q&A. That's the part where I get the most excited. Mm-hmm. But also the Q&A portion is the time in the meeting where the decision makers decide, yes, we're going to buy this or no, we're not. It isn't solely based on your pitch. So I, I define the pitch as the, like the prepared portion that you've come in to talk about. Mm-hmm. So when they say, you know, what is your project about or what do you have to tell me today? That's your prepared portion. Mm-hmm. And then the Q&A is the improvised portion where they're testing your idea. They're seeing how you respond in the room. They're asking questions about the parts that they're interested in or they're confused about, and they're seeing how you respond. Mm-hmm. And that is just as an important a component as the idea itself, because particularly in TV, as you mentioned already, it is a collaborative medium mm-hmm. where people are pitching ideas, they're challenging ideas, they're giving notes in a very fast-paced situation, and they need, this is your test of can you handle that kind of situation that is exactly what you would be doing if you are hired. So it's like the demo, the only way that they can really test how you're going to be in the future is in that meeting. Mm, very, very wise. And and I think as well, it, it, it really reemphasizes the point of how our pitches have to be short. So many people think, I, I have five minutes to pitch, so my pitch is going to be five minutes. Right, or four minutes and 55 seconds. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. But the thing is, you want, and in, especially when you have, like, if it's a pitch fest or a, a really short time, you know, speed pitching, one of those kinds of situations, mm-hmm. I suggest that your pitch be a minute and a half. Yeah. Maybe two minutes so that there is a chance for the question and the answer. And it gives a, the decision maker, the listener, is going to be much more engaged because they're a part of the conversation, hmm. not just that they're being deluged by like a fire hose of information, Yeah, um, which particularly in those kinds of speed pitching situations happen very frequently. Yeah. And by the end, you're just barely paying attention because it's so exhausting as the listener. So having some back and forth is a really great way to differentiate yourself from the other people who are pitching during one of those kinds of events. Mm. And uh, speaking about back and forth, 
rapport is huge. And that relates to the next thing, which is um, because most of us are not at those pitch conferences when we're pitching, um, how do we get in the room? And that busts another one of these, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to call it a myth, but the, the way that people have been taught for years is this whole thing about A, B, and C lists. And you don't like that at all. I don't like that idea. I think that people are humans. We are all unique individuals. And that is certainly the case with the people making hiring decisions in the TV business. They are individuals. They have families. They have dislikes, likes, you know, they're, they're unique people. And so the more that people are treated by what I call like the bulk mail approach, hmm. which is one size fits all, I'm going to send the same letter to a bunch of different people, or I'm going to contact a bunch of different people and pitch them in exactly the same way. I just don't see that working hardly at all, if ever. Yeah. What I have seen work over and over again is a really highly customized, personal, like plus one approach where you are writing a handwritten letter. I mean, mm -hmm. that may be literally or figuratively, but that you are really customizing it specifically to a particular person at a particular show and that that person feels so flattered because you have taken the time to get to know them as a person and to really explain why you are the perfect person to be hired on this show or why your project is the fit with what they're missing or what you know they've been doing well and why your project would be the next best thing for them. And that level of customization is just very flattering and will dramatically increase the odds that you'll be or that you will get a meeting or that the person will read your project. Mm, very cool. And you, you do have groups of people, but you call them different things and they have very different purposes. Um, you have the good people to know, the VIPs and the inner circle. Why don't you tell me about those groups? Well, for me, the inner circle are those people who you really can trust, who trust you who often, like for me, my inner circle are some people who I really were in the trenches with when I first was an intern um, on Titanic was the first movie that I worked on. And also when I was an assistant at Jerry Bruckheimer Films, and we were just doing some totally insane things um, on Armageddon and Enemy of the State and Con Air. And Love those movies, we came up through the business. <laughs> I enjoyed them. I enjoyed mm -hmm. them. Testosterone, you know. Yeah. It was an experience, I can tell you that, mm -hmm. um, but, but we really helped each other. And even if it's been years, I know that I could call that person and in a second they would drop the phone and pick up the phone and, you know, drop what they were doing to help me with whatever I needed. And I would absolutely do the same for them. Mm. But that's a pretty small group of people. Then there's a group of important people could be important to my career or to your career, whomever's career that I refer to as the VIPs. Mm. And these are people that you're just very careful about how, how and when you interact with them. You're looking for ways to be helpful to them, but you're not asking them for things unless it's very, very um, well-timed, well-planned, and, and very customized. Mm. And then there's kind of the, the rest of the group of people that are good people to know um, that maybe your friends, maybe your colleagues, people who you could get some feedback from. This is also a really important group of people that you want to grow. But I'm not a fan of like, oh, you need to have 5,000 people in your network. Because I think there have been studies that 
you can really only have a relationship with up to like 50 people mm. where you actually keep tabs on what they're doing. You connect with them. You send them a holiday card. You perhaps see them once a year. Like it's a pretty small number. And so I'm much more focused on the quality approach rather mm. than the quantity approach to networking. Well, and, and the other thing is that the difference between those two approaches it, the ABC thing is so phony. I mean, I, I've I've met people at these conventions and things, and there's this, hi, how are you doing? Here's my card. And as soon as they hear what I do, I, I can see their eyes glaze over sometimes. If, and I, I know what they're thinking. It's like, oh, this guy isn't important to what, what I do. So let me get to my next conversation as quickly as possible. And... Or, or the, the opposite, where I, I'm talking to them, and as soon as they find out what I do, their eyes open wide. It's like, this is a guy I need to attack. Um, and and there's, there's just something so unnatural about that. And if that's how I'm basing my career and my life, I mean, that, I don't want to live phony like that. Right. It is so superficial, and you can see that. You can see right through it, and so can other people. Hmm the good people to know the vips the inner circle like to me it all just seems so natural and i in i love the fact that it's like i can i can absolutely be proud to schedule time with myself and my family and recognize that that's important to my career yes oh yes absolutely more important if you ask me mm -hmm. like that is the central that is the whole thing and then after that are, yes, it's hugely important for you to be able to share your creative ideas and to build a successful career, but that you want it to come from a base of strength, and that's your inner circle and the people who you love and care about. Yeah, that, that, is, that is absolutely awesome. And, and, and also, I, I just love the fact that, like, to me, I feel so much better about contacting somebody when I'm not um, just trying to get something from them. I, I love the fact that I can contact some, somebody and just naturally know that my only goal right now is to build rapport with this person. Beautiful. Yes. And if I can give you a compliment, not to put you on the spot, mm -hmm. but you do such a beautiful job of providing such value that at each of those interactions, like we just met over Twitter recently, mm -hmm. yeah. but that it's like every... Every time you interact with someone, it's like a little mini test. And you know how, and I'm, this has certainly happened to me, I can imagine it's happened to you where you go to say a networking event or even a, you, know, you meet another family in the park or something mm -hmm. and you say, oh, I'm going to email you or let me invite you to uh, email you and invite you to this. They say, I'm going to invite you to this thing, but then they never email you and they never <laughs> follow yeah. up or, you know, like there's a big kind of flake factor. Mm -hmm. Like we kind of expect that 50% of people don't follow up, maybe more than that, or actually do what they say they're going to do. Mm -hmm. So the fact that when you do, which you've done so, I mean, 100% couldn't be better every time you say, this is what I'm going to do, and then you do it, it's already differentiating you right. and showing that you're a professional that you are responsible, that you're a person of your word, that you follow up. And each of these actions is just like a little mini test. And we're doing this all the time. And other people, you know, we're testing people, they're testing us at all times. But it's so simple if you are the kind of person who can follow up, 
do exactly as you say. You're just building rapport. Then the next meeting is to get to know the person a little bit more, get a little more information, but it doesn't need to be um, what I think a lot of people do. And this is like sort of like the networking situation that you described. It's like they're just meeting and then like it's a first date and then suddenly you're wanting to get them to propose. <laughs> you know, like you need to have a few stages in between. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think it's so healthy, like, like you did in your book, to uh, to apply something completely outside of it like a relationship and or you know when you first meet meet somebody i thought it was hilarious to think well of course you don't meet somebody and just smooch them right away but, and yet that's that's how we a lot of people approach pitching they do and particularly um because there it's the hollywood tv it's such a competitive business you feel like oh this is my chance i just see that person you know who's a celebrity or i just got to run and jump on them but that's not the way that decisions are typically made and that's not the initial first impression that you want to have hmm very very cool well i i know we're getting to our the end of our time here and i i i would suggest for everybody that you buy this book i, I don't think there's i mean of course the there's tons of books and resources on how to write. There's tons of resources uh, for other things. But I personally think that a lot of the things in your book aren't just about pitching. I think it's, a lot of it is is um, just how we should be conducting our relationships in this business and, and just how we should be positioning ourselves. And that, that goes far beyond what's just in the room when we pitch. Thanks. Well, I think that that is true. I think that the a lot of advice that is out there when it refers to pitching just focuses specifically on what you say about the idea mm. or the project, yeah. like what's your log line or what's your short summary. But for someone to be successful and for their pitch to be purchased or their project to be purchased, that what you say about your project is just one component and that needs to work with how you present yourself how you are an expert in that genre and how your project works as a key piece, you know, within the whole picture of who you are as a person. Hmm. Because when you're hired, it's not just that they're going to pay you, you know, say, yes, um, you know, we want to buy your TV show. We're just going to send you a check and never see you again. It's like, no, we're going to be working with you really closely. Like we're going to see you more than we see our own families hmm. over this next year. So you are a huge component of the idea. It's not just simply, I have a drama about, you know, a car chase set in wherever. Hmm. Well, before we close out, I do want to just cover one last thing, and that is the most common mistakes. <laughs> what do you think? What would you say are the, the most common reasons that people don't get their pitches sold? The most common reasons are talking too much. In the, re in the room, mm -hmm. because the more you say, the less they hear. Mm. Talking too quickly. Yeah. When you're taking in information orally through your ears, it is not the same as you can't take it in as quickly as you can as when you're reading on the page. Mm -hmm. And also talking business too soon. So we've talked about rapport, but often a mistake that people make is they get into a meeting and they just jump right into pitching their project, mm. whereas the decision maker wants to take a moment to build rapport and wants to get to know who you are as a person so that they're really paying attention by the time you start talking about your idea. Great, great advice. And, uh, and I should absolutely mention 
that uh, your website has a lot of resources, including a blog, and you have some consulting services that people can find out about there. That's goodinaroom.com? Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. And people can follow you on Twitter, at goodinaroom? That's right. And I, of course, also have a Facebook page. (laughs) (laughs) You're covering all the bases. Yeah. Uh, Facebook.com slash... Good in a room. Good in a room. I, I love Correct. these easy to remember um, addresses. <laughs> it is consistent. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, very very cool. Well, um, we we are at the end of our our time, but I really really appreciate. I mean, first first of all, your book. Like I said, I think everybody needs to read this, um, and it it is just so healthy. Um, I I love that it's not phony. I I love that it helps in so many other ways, and I and I I just. I, I know I said this to a few people, Jen, Jen Grisanti as well, and, and other people who have had these big, really big careers in Hollywood and decided that they were going to um, step out of those and start helping people. And uh-huh. I, I just, hats off to you. I mean, that is awesome. The fact that you are helping people get their projects made, um, awesome stuff. Well, thank you. And and actually I it's one of those situations where I get so much satisfaction that I feel like it's a it's I'm the lucky one in that situation that I get to be part of, you know, like almost like a midwife for the project and that is a a gift that I am so grateful for. Well, like I said, thanks so much and really best of luck to you and I I, I think the good, the greatest thing is as I give luck, I, as I wish luck to you, that that means that lots of people are going to have good luck because their pitches are going to be sold. So that, that is just way, way cool. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web.